This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and I will be your host. This is episode 300. Hey, 300 episodes. That's six years of podcasting, putting out an episode every single week without missing a single week for 300 weeks in a row. That's exciting. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast movement. And here is to another 300 episodes. But this episode, number 300, is entitled, Who Are the Opponents in First John. Now, last week we introduced the subject of Gnosticism and we looked at three documents, three writers that scholars have described as Gnostic. And we also looked at the problems with that sort of terminology and the ways in which people have defined Gnostic Christians or Gnosticism. And we're going to be building on that by looking at the document that many scholars have assumed have opponents mentioned in it that are, in fact, Gnostic Christians. And that's going to be the document of First John. So today we're going to begin a series that looks at the letter that is known to us as First John. Now there's a lot of disagreement regarding the setting of First John, particularly in regard to who the opponents are that are mentioned in it. Now, I think as an interpreter, it seems fairly logical that if you're going to read 1 John, you first have to reconstruct the situation and try to, as best you can, understand the identity of the opponents that the author is warning the readers about before we can actually make sense of the letter as a whole. So this week's episode is going to look at the three major passages that scholars and commentators have pointed to over the last 150 years of scholarship on this letter in order to reconstruct the identity of those opponents. And after we look briefly at various proposals of the identity of these opponents, including Gnostic Christians... I will also take the time to discuss the ways in which I will be navigating this 150 years worth of scholarship and where our study is going to go forward for the next, I would say, six to seven episodes. Don't hold me on that particular number. So, who are the opponents of 1 John and what did they have to say about the subject of Christology that the author of 1 John had to correct. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the three primary texts. There are three passages in 1 John that scholars for the last 150 years have pointed to in order to determine the identity of the opponents, the beliefs of the opponents, and the theology of the opponents that the author first John was trying to protect the readers from. So the first passage is in first John chapter two, 
starting in verse 18. And this, I will agree, is a very important passage for the book. It says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. So what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. That's first John chapter two verses eighteen through twenty seven. And this is the primary passage that scholars look at in order to try to ascertain the identity and the beliefs of the opponents. And the key thing that I want to pull out of this is that these opponents were formerly members of the Johannan community, but they have departed. They have left the community. So this was an internal problem. The second passage that scholars typically look at in order to define the opponents is 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's first John chapter four, verses one through six. So this passage deals with false prophets that have gone out into the world and the particular proclamation, the message of these false prophets, 
is that they say that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. And so the author says that you need to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And if you do so, you are actually from God. And of course, the person who does not confess Jesus is not actually from God. And those who make that confession possess the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, it's also important to note that this document, 1 John, is the very first occurrence of Antichrist language. And I can assure you, in this document, it is not some end-time deceiver to be identified with some sort of beast from Revelation 13. The Antichrist involves the persons who have gone out into the world. They are considered false prophets, and they are those that do not confess that Jesus is from God. So that's the second passage, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. The third passage is in chapter 5, starting in verse 6. This passage reads, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit that testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That's 1 John chapter 5, verses 6-12. through 12. And many of these scholarly reconstructions look at the initial part of this passage, describing Jesus coming in water and blood, and there's the testimony of the water and the blood and the testimony of the Spirit, and these three are in agreement. And often, mere readings are placed on this particular passage to say, well, the opponents must not believe that Jesus came by water and blood. Maybe they're suggesting that Jesus only came by one of them, but not the other. And so this is the third passage that scholars typically look at in order to determine the beliefs and the identity of the opponents of 1 John. So we have those three passages, and it's very important that if we're going to follow along in our study and our attempts to try to determine who the opponents actually are, we keep these three passages in mind. So that's chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. That's kind of the, the main passage. We have chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and we have chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Having looked at the three passages, we can now move to explore the different ways in which scholars have identified the opponents. That'll move us to our second point, point number two. So, over the last 150 years, scholars of 1 John have identified five possible opponents that 
the author could potentially be describing. And I'm going to list them in no particular order, but I'm going to start with the popular interpretation of 1 John in that the opponents are Gnostics. They are adherents to Gnosticism. Now I'm saying this in the air. I'm using air quotes over these terms because if you have listened to the last episode, 299, you're aware of the problems that scholars have raised concerning this particular category because it seems to be too broad. It seems to describe groups that have more things that are in disagreement than they actually have things that are in common. It seems to put people in that don't seem to fit into this particular category. It seems to leave out people that actually do have a lot of these shared characteristics. And many scholars have suggested that the term effectively in the second century just kind of means a heretic that we disagree with. So that the term should be abandoned, except for those select few persons that actually self-identify as Gnostics, some of those Sethian Gnostics. So I'm going to just use the term Gnostics and Gnosticism, but my own terminology, which I think is far less anachronistic, it's far from perfect, but it's better than the term Gnostic, is people that are influenced by Middle Platonic philosophy that engage with diverse biblical traditions. But we can call it Gnosticism if we're conscious of the anachronism of that term. So many scholars think that the opponents of First John are adherents to Gnosticism. So in doing so, they're going to define the term in reference to people that believe in some sort of advanced knowledge that if they possess, they're going to have a transcendent encounter with God, some sort of enlightening, some sort of spiritual enlightenment. Typically, these people regard matter as evil, but it's not always the case, as I pointed out last week. And they typically believe in some sort of form of perfectionism or libertinism. That's kind of the general way in which some scholars have described Gnosticism. So that's the first possibility in regard to the opponents of First John. And to be fair, many people have agreed with that sort of understanding. And my general feeling is that when I ask lay readers of First John who they think the opponents of First John are, they have somehow arrived at this conclusion that it is actually Gnostics. The second potential opponent would be adherents of Docetism. So these would be Docetic Christians. What do Docetic Christians believe? Well, they believe that Jesus was not a real flesh and blood human being. He only seemed to be, using the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem. That's why they're called docetist. So this is slightly different from the Gnostic view, although I think some people think about docetism and they think of Gnosticism and they think, well, they effectively overlap and they might effectively say the same thing. But scholars over the last 150 years have distinguished docetic Christology from Gnostic Christology. So I'm just going to put it in its own category. And I want to make sure that we give credit to those who actually make this particular argument as something distinct from the category of Gnosticism. The third category would be the followers of Serenthus, or the technical title for this would be Serinthianism. Now, what did Serenthus believe? Well, he believed in something that's called a separatist Christology. 
This would be a Christology that actually distinguishes Jesus from the Christ. Now, how in the world do you distinguish Jesus from the Christ? Is it Jesus called Jesus Christ? Well, this particular Christology and the believers of this particular Christological theology understood Christ as something that descended upon Jesus at his baptism and the Christ departed from Jesus right before Jesus' death. And so Jesus and Christ would not be terms that are identical. They would refer to two separate things. This is what's called a separatist Christology, the Christ separated from Jesus. And the popular person that brought about this particular belief was a person named Serenthus. That's our third option. The fourth option would be opponents who devalue the significance of Jesus. Now, this has become a little bit more popular in critical scholarship. Particularly, it is headlined in the Anchor Bible Commentary on 1 John and more recently in the Erdman's Critical Commentary on 1 John. So that's Raymond Brown and Urban von Wald. Now, I used to be convinced of this particular belief, and those former students of mine that are listening to this will be familiar with the lectures that we gave on First and Second John where I tried to expound this particular belief. Now, what is the position of the opponents who would devalue the significance of Jesus? Well, the argument goes that these opponents did not think very highly of the earthly ministry of Jesus or the significance of Jesus' earthly ministry. What they actually thought should be emphasized was the spirit that came after, meaning the spirit that Jesus sent, the spirit that would continue the ministry of Jesus, and the spirit that would empower the believers. And so the suggestion is that these opponents were far more interested in the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the reception of the Spirit. And they kind of felt that, well, if we have the Spirit, we don't really need Jesus anymore. We don't need to value the Son. And so First Sean would be suggesting that actually you do need to have the Son because these opponents are rejecting the significance of the Son. They're not rejecting Jesus, but they're saying now that we have the Spirit, the Spirit is far more important than what Jesus accomplished. So they would be devaluing the significance of Jesus and his earthly ministry. And as I pointed out, it's a very popular view in biblical scholarship today. The fifth view is that the opponents are Jews. They are members of Judaism. Now, what would this mean? Well, it would suggest that the members of the Johannine community who left were Jewish Christians. They were born Jews. They were converted to Christianity. They were part of the Johannine community, but they renounced their belief in Jesus as the Messiah in order to return to the comforts and the safety of the synagogue. And so that would make these believers just simply Jews. Okay, They're not Gnostics or Docetists. They're not followers of Serenthus. They're not even necessarily suggesting that Jesus was unimportant. They're just rejecting Jesus, saying that Jesus is not really the Messiah. 
They're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, and they are returning to the synagogue and returning to what would effectively be at the end of the first century rabbinic Judaism. So those are the five different views that scholars have put forth over the last 150 years. And what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to dedicate an entire episode to each of these five options to show how their particular reconstruction reads the data, reads the three passages and the strengths of the arguments and what I might think are the weaknesses of their arguments. So this will actually move us to our third and final point today, which is the problems with previous proposals. I mentioned that there are the three passages that scholars have put forth over the last 150 years that they think describe the identity and the beliefs of the opponents of 1 John, that the writer of 1 John is composing this document in order to convince the readers that they need to avoid these opponents and they can understand who these opponents are and to encourage them in this internal conflict. But there are some problems with this sort of reconstruction that I kind of want to lay my cards on the table so that the listeners can understand where I'm coming from. And I want to show you how I think some of the interpretation that's taken place might be overlooking some of the closer details. I'm not going to say everything, but I'm going to give you a couple of indications as to where I'm going to be taking our study for the next five or six weeks. So the first thing that I want to point out is that there is often a failure to acknowledge the source of the problem in 1 John. Our first passage that we looked at in 1 John chapter 2 said that they went out from us. And it seems very clear there that the problem is an internal problem. The believers were formerly part of this particular church, this community. Sometimes it's called the Johannine community, but they left, they departed, they separated from the Christian community. They left. You might call them apostates if you would like to do so. That's okay. But it would indicate that this is an internal problem. However, when you look at the second passage, 1 John chapter 4, this passage says that there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. And the language that's used to describe those is not actually the same as the language that we see in chapter 2. Chapter 2 indicates former believers that left the community. But chapter 4 seems to be regarding, in my opinion, if you read the language closely, a separate group of persons. Persons that are described as false prophets, and they're just people that have gone out into the world. But that's not the way that you would describe people that have left your community. These are a different group of persons. And I think one of the problems with scholarly reconstructions is that they have read these two passages and they have assumed, uncritically in my opinion, that they are referring to the same group of persons. I don't think that's actually the case. But as we go through and we look at the closer details of how the scholars who reconstruct with their understanding of the opponents read these passages, you can decide for yourself whether you think that their reconstruction is convincing. I think they have a lot of problems. The first problem, of course, is acknowledging the source of the problem. 1 John chapter 2 indicates an internal problem. 1 John chapter 4 indicates an external problem. 
false prophets that have gone out into the world. The second issue with previous proposals involve what are called mere readings. What is a mere reading? Well, a mere reading is a way that many people interpret books of the Bible where the opponents are not explicitly stated. So I'm thinking something like, uh, like the book of James or Jude or First and Second John. And so what these scholars do is they perform a mere reading. They read a particular passage and they see what the passage is trying to say in the positive and they assume that, well, if the author is trying to say this in the positive, then the opponents that we don't exactly know who they are must be saying the opposite of what the author is saying. Otherwise, why would the author be emphasizing this particular point? Now, to be fair, this is a hypothesis, and you have to test the hypothesis to see if it brings about a conclusion that is logical and that accounts for all of the data. The problem, though, is that mere readings, if they're used uncritically, are in danger of circular reasoning. You might assume that, well, the author is saying that, okay, Jesus is the Christ, and so these people are rejecting that Jesus is the Christ, and since we know that, we can now read all these other passages that make that particular point and it could easily become circular in its reasoning. I'm not saying that mere readings are not helpful in all cases. Sometimes I think they are helpful, but they're not actually looking at explicit evidence. They're looking at things that an author is saying, and they're making an assumption that the author is saying something in the positive in order to respond to an opposing teaching that the opponents believed and were teaching. So we have to be careful with mere readings, but as we're going to see in the reconstruction of the various ways that scholars have described the opponents, they engage in mere readings quite often, and their arguments are often very circular. Last thing I want to point out is the awareness that we need to have in regard to historical anachronisms. One of the questions I want to ask is that we need to decide whether we have convincing evidence that the proposed opponent actually existed at the end of the first century. And even there, I have to make a case that First John is written at the end of the first century. Now, I am going to lay my cards on the table here, and I think that First John is actually written by the same author as Second and Third John. When you examine lexically, the vocabulary of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, it seems overwhelmingly clear that they are written by the same person, the same hand. I think one particular person wrote all of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That author does not describe himself as John. He's just called the elder in 2nd and 3rd John. 1st John is actually anonymous, so I'm just going to call him the author. But when you also look at the vocabulary in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, which all scholars acknowledge is an appendix that's added on to the end of the Gospel of John at kind of the latest stages of the editing of the Gospel of John, it seems that the author of John 21 is the same author as the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I think this can be very interesting because it would suggest that there is some sort of relationship between the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so I'm going to keep an eye on that 
in the background, but we need to be deciding if the opponents that are being expressed in 1 John, which I think was written either right at the end of the first century, possibly right at the beginning of the second century, but probably in the latter part of the 90s AD, we need to ask whether the opponents that we are going to suggest historically existed at the time period in which we are dating this particular letter. Now, too often people assume that, well, we think 1 John is referencing these opponents, and when I ask for the evidence that these opponents actually existed, as in, show me a document, show me a book, show me a person, show me a school of thought, I get kind of blank stares. And, you know, we have to avoid historical anachronisms. If we're going to argue that the first century, second century, and third century Christians did not believe in the Trinity because the reading the Trinity back into those first three centuries would be historically anachronistic. We also have to be aware of historical anachronisms with our reconstruction of these difficult books like 1 John. So those are things that I'm thinking about in regard to some of the previous proposals, acknowledging what sort of passages we actually look at to define the opponents. We decide whether mere readings are circular or whether they're helpful in decoding the data that we actually have and our awareness of historical anachronism when positing a proposed opponent of the document that we call 1 John. So that's the approach that I'm going to take. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week, episode 301, as we explore the pros and cons of the Gnostic theory of opponents in 1 John. And we'll be looking at the reasons that scholars have put forth in favor of the theory that the opponents are adherents of Gnosticism. And we're also going to look at the arguments of those scholars who disagree with this reconstruction. And thereby you, as the listener, can hear the arguments in favor and the arguments against it, and you can decide for yourself whether you think that, quote-unquote, Gnostics were the opponents of First John. Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on YouTube or iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.